Amen. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Good morning. Welcome to uh, Central for the continuation of our series, The Space Between. And today we're looking at the idea of how do we wait in the space between being wronged and receiving justice. And one of the, the central points of this message, right at the heart of the book that we're going to look at today, is the idea of remembering that mercy always triumphs over judgment. And in our desire for justice, we have to remember that God is indeed a God who delights in showing mercy. Now, how many of you have ever traveled along Route 66? Any of you, any of you done that? Have any of you done it from start to finish? Anybody cast your hand in here? Yeah. Ah, somebody up there has done it. I think it goes from Chicago, right, all the way through nearly 2,500 miles, eight states. Uh, originally, I think it was built in 1926. I think Phoenix's longest stretch of the road as it originally was and all of this kind of stuff. But the reason I mentioned that is, first, thank you for being here. I know a lot of people take a road trip on this weekend, and I just want to thank you for being here for what I consider to be my least favorite American holiday. <laughs> yeah, least favorite. I, I like your holidays, but this one really kind of irritates me. You know, we kind of ruled the world, ruled Britannia and all of that, and we give the rest of the world back, but you decided to jump out of our hands. And every time I get to this holiday, I think about inept leadership, and I think about the one that got away. All of this could be ours. <laughs> but it's not. So uh, thank you so much for being here. And uh, if that's an apology, me not being so, you know, kind of hyped up for this holiday, then I also want to apologize for the fact that we're going to look at a book today whose name I always butcher. Habakkuk. Where I come from is Habakkuk. Okay, every time I say it your way, it sounds like I'm involved in a soft drink commercial. You know, Habakkuk. It's kind of... <laughs> So we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk today. If you need a copy of the scriptures, you can raise your hands in the air, and Rushes would be delighted to loan you a copy of the scriptures. And we're going to look at what is called a minor prophet. He's a minor prophet because he didn't write that much. He writes 56 verses. But the reason for the message title, Route 66, is these 56 verses span 66 years. And so my prayer is that whenever you stumble across the book of Habakkuk, and I may fall into the habit of saying Habakkuk at some point, but you all know what I'm doing when I do that. Um, whenever you stumble across this book of Habakkuk, you think Route 66, you think of a guy who had to wait a very, very long time to receive justice. 66 years. And the 56 verses in this little three-chapter book stem from about 609 B.C. through into about 535 B.C. It's a long span. It begins with Habakkuk offering a prayer about what it's like to live under a corrupt king by the name of Jehoiakim. It then continues in chapter 2 with what it's like to deal with the fact that sometimes God uses seemingly strange people to discipline his own people. 
That happens much later. And then it ends at the end with another period of history. So this is a guy who wrestles with his desire for justice, and he doesn't seem to get it. Now, if you have a look at the book, you'll notice the way it begins in verse 1. It says, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. Now, firstly, the word received there is the word saw. It's a vision, okay? This is the prophecy that the prophet Habakkuk saw. Now, what's interesting with this is this second word, the word prophecy. The word prophecy here is the word, the Hebrew word Massah, M-A-S-S-A, or Massa, which actually means burden. It means a load. It means a weight. It means something he's bearing. So the prophet has a prophecy that's based on something he sees about something he feels. He is burdened. He is weighed down by something he's going through. He desires justice. This weight is too much for him. Some of you may be here and it's the same thing that you're feeling. You're feeling weighed down because someone has done you wrong and they're seemingly get away, getting away with it. Maybe you're here and you've got family relationships and those relationships are strained because this person constantly runs you down. And you're burdened with it. You're weighted with this thing. And you're experiencing that no matter what you do, they constantly get away with it. Maybe for you it's in business. Somebody owes you money and they're trying to get out of paying for it. And you're just burdened. And you're asking yourself, God, how long does this need to go on? Well, if you've ever experienced that, then this is what this book is about. It's about a prophet who has to wait a very, very long time for something that is so wrong to even be made remotely right. He's navigating that space between wrong and justice. Now, what's interesting with Habakkuk is that Habakkuk is called a prophet even though his book actually has Habakkuk speaking to God about his people, not to his people about God. That makes him unique. Because prophecy is usually God speaks to a prophet about something he's doing for his people. Now clearly, this book was written down because his people, God's people, needed to know that God had something for them as they were going through this. Now, Habakkuk is a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote down a lot of what God was saying. But in this book, this is a book where the prophet speaks to God about what God is doing on behalf of his people. It's not something where God speaks to the prophet who tells the people. God wanted this written down because he wants people of every generation, even some of you in here to know, that listen, you may be waiting a long time for justice, but God will get you there. God will get you there. Don't give up. Don't give up hope. Don't despair that the righteous will always suffer and the wicked will always prosper. At some point in time, judgment will come. But for right now, what do we do? 
In this book, we discover that there are kind of three uh, secrets to navigating that season between being wronged and finding justice. And it begins with this idea of, look, if you have an intimate relationship with God, that intimate relationship with God allows you to speak freely, openly, honestly, candidly. There's the principle of closeness and candor. Have a look with me at verse 2. Habakkuk's complaint. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Now, again, this is a season in which Habakkuk, a prophet, we don't know much about him, but from a verse at the end of the book, we think that he led the worship in the temple, just from a verse that's there. His name is mentioned twice in the book. He's experiencing injustice in a nation as the result of a corrupt king, Jehoiakim. And he's crying out to God, saying, God, this is wrong. Just people are suffering because you allow this guy to get away with it. Why? Notice how candid he is. It's true to say that when some people's minds go blank, they turn up the volume when they really need to turn it down. We don't need to be listening to some of the stuff people with empty heads are saying. But it is also true to say that the righteous people with full hearts, with weighed down hearts, need to turn up the volume because God wants to hear what you're saying. But it is also true that one of the hardest things to do in any relationship that's supposed to be close is to be candid. How many of you experience relational conflict any time you try to get honest? It's tough, isn't it? And it's also tough to be candid with God when you're annoyed with him. Margaret was a wonderful lady that I met in the church in Hamburg that I was pastoring. Margaret was a single lady who'd recently moved to Germany. She was a Christian refugee. Yes, those people do exist. Margaret's story is a pretty incredible story. She came to Hamburg from Nigeria. She was living in a, in a big city, and she went home to her father, who was a very influential man in a number of villages. He was the witch doctor. Margaret led her father to Christ, and the, the people in those villages got so upset with her that they wanted to kill her. Her father, shortly after that, died, Margaret wanted to do the funeral, and she wanted to honor the last wish of her father, which was to have a Christian burial. So Margaret went around a lot of these popular pastors, and none of them would actually bury her father because it was too dangerous to do so. Margaret eventually found an old pastor with a dilapidated building. The windows were all smashed to agree to do the funeral. The funeral was basically this old pastor, Margaret, and the dead father. Nobody else turned up. Everybody was angry. The funeral took place under armed military guard. Shortly after that, 
Margaret was granted asylum in Germany. She moved to Germany, and one day she was traveling an underground, on an underground system from one place in Hamburg to another place in Hamburg, and while she was waiting for a train, she was savagely assaulted by a German guy, and nobody did a thing to stop it. A little while later, Margaret made an appointment with me, and she came into me, and she was so angry. She said, Craig, how can God allow all this to happen? All I have done is try to be faithful. And yet, no matter where I go, trouble seems to follow me everywhere. And she said, Craig, the hardest thing of all is every time I pray, I just can't. I'm so angry that talking to God in prayer is a struggle for me right now, and I don't know what to do. And one of the things I, I told Margaret was simply this. Margaret, for righteous people in an unrighteous world, we need to realize that sometimes protestation and attestation coexist. Sometimes we are people who are in a world where wrong is going on and we will express our faith at the same time as we will express, express our frustration. Sometimes faith and questioning go hand in hand in people's lives. And I turned, Margaret, to this book, to Jeremiah chapter 20. And we read some of these verses. And I said, Margaret, I can't answer why God has allowed you to go through all of this, but I do know this, that you have to tell God what you're feeling. Closeness and candor go hand in hand. It is okay to be upset with God. It is the worst thing that you can possibly do, not to tell him and to back off. I wonder how many of you here have had that experience, that you've wanted God to do something in your life and he hasn't done it. Maybe you've experienced a loved one dying. And it's one of the hardest things in the world to feel betrayed by God and to push through it. It's called the betrayal barrier. So many times in our life, one of the greatest challenges that we will face is the need to push through that betrayal barrier and because we have this intimate relationship with God, actually tell him candidly how we're feeling. That's what Margaret needed to do. And anybody who's had that kind of experience or that kind of season knows that there is a wait and a woe to the wait for justice. There is a wait, there is a burden. That's what Habakkuk was carrying, a burden for 66 years. And there is a woe. There is something wrong in this wait for justice. And in chapter 2 and verse 3, we read the reminder of God to the prophet and to his people. Hey, listen, I know that you are carrying a burden. And I know that this burden is addressing something that is so wrong. But please be patient. The text says, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It won't prove false. Habakkuk, I'm going to get you there. People of God, God is saying, I'm going to get you there. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come. 
and it will not delay. So this, this is basically where it begins. If you're navigating that space between being wronged and finding justice, God says, look, come to me, tell me how you're feeling. God is saying, look, don't turn down the volume, turn up the volume. Tell me, speak to me, address me. Because the minute we start to do that, something happens in our own soul that God starts to lead us along this path to a principle that is so essential for what God is working out in the world, and yet it's so hard for us to grasp. And that is the principle of what I'm calling the less and the less. So in chapter 1, this is a dialogue about the context with Jehoiakim in uh, ruling over Judah, the southern kingdom, everything is wrong, uh, and God is saying to the prophet, tell me, talk to me, Let, let's talk about this. And then what we discover from verse 5 is God's answer, and in God's answer, he introduces Habakkuk to something that is very difficult. It's the principle of the less and less. Have a look with me from verse 5. In 5 and 6, we read this, look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you will not believe even if I told you. Now, if we stop there, everything sounds awesome, doesn't it? God is going to do a new thing. Now, if you're struggling with wrong and you speak it to God and God comes to you and says, hey, guess what, Habakkuk, I've heard you and I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe it even if I told you. Oh, this sounds good, doesn't it? You can start to feel the excitement bubbling in the guy and this is what is going to be new and it's horrific. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who will sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. And Habakkuk says, certainly not amen. He says, what? What? This is the new thing that you're going to do? This is the way that you're going to bring righteousness, that you're going to bring justice for those who have been wronged. You're going to make me wait for it. And then you're going to use the less righteous to discipline the less wicked. The principle of the less and less. See, this word prophecy, this word burden, this word weight, this word laden, heavy laden, is a word that is used in the prophetic books of the Old Testament to describe how God uses less righteous nations to bring discipline on a less wicked people. How God would raise the Babylonians to discipline the southern kingdom of Judah. How he would raise the Assyrians to bring discipline on the northern kingdom of Israel. You see, when it comes to God working out justice, when it comes to God working out all things in the world that will ultimately lead not only to the first coming of Jesus Christ, but also to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the principle is we have to be prepared as God's people for God to raise up less righteous leaders in less righteous nations to actually bring discipline and refinement, and all things together to lead to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is very hard for us to get our minds around. God uses less righteous people 
to bring history to a point of good for less wicked people. Now, this is so difficult for us to get our head around. It's difficult for us to get our head around because at so many points in time, when we've experienced wrong, what we do is something called comparison. We, we kind of look right and left to evaluate ourselves alongside those people who are doing wrong and forget that the only evaluation that really matters is the vertical one. The only evaluation that matters is where we stand with God. Now, what's interesting is that in chapter 1, God lets Habakkuk into the secret. He's going to have to wait a little while longer because he's going to use a less righteous people to bring discipline and refinement on a less wicked people. This blows the the prophet's mind. And then, if not to make it worse, right, in chapter 2, now in chapter 2, we get to the point that the Babylonians, it's moved on in time, the Babylonians are now going to come in and they're going to overrun Judah. And quite a while later, God comes to Habakkuk again and says, look, Habakkuk, I realize this is difficult for you, and here's five reasons why. These are five truths about this less righteous people, the Babylonians. Firstly, I know the fact that they exploit people. I know that they have everything they have through unjust gain. I know that they are violent. I know that they practice debauchery, and I know that they practice idolatry. I know this. And you can just hear the prophet, can't you, saying, then, God, why are you doing this? Why do you use a, a less righteous people to bring your refinement on a less wicked people? And God, why am I getting caught up in this? And when it comes to the way that God works in the world and the way that God works with nations, one of the most difficult things to accept is that God works in the world to bring everything to the point of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and invariably what will happen is righteous people living righteously in an unjust nation get caught up in the righteous acts of a holy God working in history to bring all things to an end that he's determined. We get caught up in it. It's one of the hardest things for a Christian to go through. Realizing that God is working in history, bringing a less righteous people, people like this. And then righteous people, faithful people, are caught up in it. And what does God say we're going to do when he's working out this principle of less and less? Is Habakkuk, there I did it, Habakkuk, Chapter 2, in verse 4. For the just shall live by faith. That's in chapter 2. Hey, Habakkuk, before anything else happens, remember this word. Remember this phrase. It's going to be really important, Habakkuk, for righteous people to hold on to when they're living in an unrighteous world where I'm working everything to my end. Remember this. For the just shall live by faith. Or for the righteous person shall live being faithful. That's the idea. Listen, Habakkuk, I know this is tough. I know you can't get this, but remember it. Be faithful even in this season. And again, this is so difficult 
okay? Because when this is happening, we tend to look to the right, we look to the left, and we compare ourselves with someone else. This is what Habakkuk does in chapter 1 and verse 13. When God says, look, I'm going to do this incredible thing, you won't believe it. I'm going to raise a less righteous people in order to bring discipline on a less wicked people. Habakkuk says, hey, hang on a second, God. Why do you tolerate the treacherous? Now, notice what he does here. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Oh, oh, he's got his theology wrong. What does the Bible say? There is none that is righteous. No, not one. This idea that God ultimately rewards those people and actually spares judgment on people who get one thing right or one thing more right than the person next to them is not the way it works. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. Therefore, God is saying to Habakkuk, listen, as I work out my purposes in the world, raising up less righteous leaders to bring discipline on a less wicked nation that leads everything towards the return of Jesus Christ, remember to embrace the refining work that I have to do in you because there is none that is righteous, no, not one. Yes, you may not have done this, but we're all born in sin. We're all shaped in iniquity. Judgment comes to us all. This is really hard to do. There were, I was a pretty good kid in school, so I thought, and then as I thought about this message, I actually thought about three times in elementary school where I was less than righteous. Let's put it that way. The first time was when uh, a couple of friends and, of mine decided to throw a friend of mine over the fence that separated what we call elementary school, okay, infant school to junior school. Okay, so you kind of go there with nursery and kindergarten and everything else, then you go into elementary. We threw him over the fence. I got in trouble for that. But the, the one I really got in trouble for was a lunch break. It was, I was probably, I don't know, six, something like that. And uh, my family were pretty poor growing up, so I had subsidized food and meals, okay? So I had my warm meal in school. So we were in the canteen, we were having our lunch, and uh, the dinner lady, that's what we used to call them, I don't know what we call them over here, so no disrespect. Uh, the dinner lady came, came over, and she asked us if we wanted more water. And I, this is amazing. They never asked us if we wanted more water. These ladies were mean. So they asked us, do you, want, do you want more water? We said, yes. So we had more water. We were so pumped with this, okay? We went out, and a number of my friends went down the corridor shouting, we had more water, we had more water. It was that much of a big deal. Well, the principal was there, heard us, took us into her office, and this was a time of corporate, corporate punishment, okay? We basically had to put a hand out like this, and she hit us with a ruler, okay, over our hand because we weren't allowed to do that in school. It's one of school rules. You don't shout and yell down the corridor. And I was really annoyed with this because I didn't sing it. I went home and I told my mom. I said, Mom, listen, I got in trouble from school. My policy was I better tell my mom and try and twist it rather than my mom found out from opening my bag and reading the note, right? Any of you kids with me on that one? Tell them and twist it and hopefully get a light the punishment. Well, that's kind of what I did, but actually I felt wronged. I, I hadn't sung. And I said, Mom, you know, I got in trouble in school. Uh, what did you do? And uh, I kind of explained it, but mom, this is wrong. I, I actually didn't sing. And my mother looked at me, and she just said, were you there? Uh, yeah. 
Well, I'm sorry, Craig, that's called guilty by association. That's just the way it works. Don't go around with people who get you in trouble next time, huh? And then she moved on. <laughs> on the one hand, I'm really relieved because, wow, I could have got in a lot of trouble here. But on the other hand, I was really ticked because I didn't actually sing. I didn't do this thing. I wasn't as bad as the other people to the left and to the right. What I needed to realize is, look, when it comes to God's refining work on our hearts, and remember Pastor Steve right at the beginning, he said, listen, when we're navigating any space, okay, what we need to recognize is that in that space, God wants to do that refining work on our hearts. That's one of the reasons we're in the space. What I've recognized is when I'm being, feeling I've been wronged and I want justice, I have to remember that God refines me not on the basis of my sonship, okay, but on the basis or for the reason of my service. I am disciplined, not because I am, in a sense, I'm disciplined because I'm a son, but the discipline affects my service, not my sonship. Let me explain it like this. How many of you are teachers? Any of you teachers in here? Yeah, okay. How many of you teachers have actually ever taught your kids? Any of you teachers taught your kids? Now, if your child would misbehave, would you treat them just the same? That's a good question, isn't it? Because you're in a classroom. When I was in school, in high school, there was a math teacher, Mr. Griffiths. I'll be honest, I didn't like Mr. Griffiths at all. I didn't like him because one time he was working on an equation and uh, he basically got the second line of his equation wrong. I told him and he punched me across the face. Seriously. But his two kids, they got away with blue murder because they were his kids. See, when we go through any kind of refinement by God, it, it works, supposed to because we're sons, but God disciplines even those who have walked away from him, right? But it works on the basis of not our sonship. It doesn't affect our sonship. I'm, I was still my mother's son. I'm still God's son when he refines me. It works on the basis of service, of faithfulness. For the just in an unjust world shall live by faithfulness. God wants us to be faithful. And when we're caught up in the righteous actions of a righteous God in an unrighteous world, it's not affecting our sonship, it's affecting our service. God wants us to learn the lessons we need to to serve him more. What does that look like in a world like this? It looks like recognizing it is never okay for a righteous person to remain silent when injustice is in this world. At the time when many people attempted to turn down the volume when they see injustice because standing up for what is right when so many people are there for what is wrong is so hard to do, God says, look, it is never right for the righteous to remain silent on injustice. See, what God wants us to do is God wants us to speak out. God wants us to serve him faithfully. And so one of the things that is really, really important when we're going through that space between wrong and finding justice is to recognize that sometimes God kind of envelops us in a process that has to do with the way that things are working out in the world. And what God wants us to do is to not look to the left and the right and think I'm better than this person or, or you know, or not as good as this person. He wants us to look up and remember that there there is nothing that we can do that would ever stop us from being a son or a daughter of the living God. This refinement has to do with service, faithfulness in the world. We have to embrace the principle of the less and less. God uses the less righteous to discipline the less wicked. And sometimes we're going to be caught up in that. And let's not compare ourselves. 
Let's actually look up and say, God, I thank you that I'm a son and a daughter of yours and that you have deemed me worthy of serving you. I think the second thing we need to realize here is this idea that the universal attempt to avoid responsibility universally fails. That when we do this comparison, it doesn't work at all. This verse is great too. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. The other thing that we're tempted to do, or the other thing rather that's going on when God allows us to be caught up in his kind of dealings in the world and the wait for justice is that he will start to challenge the source of our strength. Now, Habakkuk lived in an agrarian community, okay, with farming, with fishing. Many of the people who Jesus called to be his disciples were actually fishermen. James and John, for example, they worked for their father. Their father was a wealthy fisherman. He had a number of servants, okay? When Jesus says, hey, leave your nets, come follow me, Jesus is actually challenging the source of their strength, the source of their confidence. What God was doing as he disciplined his people through the Babylonians, was saying, in what, in whom do you place your trust? If you've been wronged in the area of business, for example, where you need money and you are owed money, but you are not receiving money, what is God doing in this moment? God may well be saying to you, in whom or in what is your trust? In a sense, Every culture has a source of strength. And in every culture, the source of strength becomes not only the root of injustice, should be a comma there, not a period, but also the source of our confidence. And the true test of worship is whether we surrender our strengths to the Lordship of Christ. Listen, if you're being tested and you're waiting justice in an area of strength, then maybe what God is saying to you is, look, in what or whom is your confidence? Let me give you a story to illustrate this. Peter, fishing. Been fishing all night. Night was the best time to fish. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Then Jesus comes along and says, Peter, drop down your nets. It's the wrong time to fish. In that moment, Peter has a question of whether he will surrender his strength, his ability to catch fish, to the Lordship of Christ and do something, drop a net at the wrong time, the wrong side of the boat, and in the wrong way. Everything was wrong with this. And what did Peter do? Drop the net and they caught so many fish that he needed help to put it up. Folks, sometimes God has us in this space between being wrong and being and receiving justice because he wants to get to the source of our strength. In whom or in what do you put your trust? And one of the hardest things to do when you've been wronged is to trust God even when you don't understand what he's doing. The principle of the lesson less. The, the third lesson here I think that we learn from the book of Habakkuk takes us into chapter three and that is because we have this close relationship with God and we recognize that sometimes righteous people are going to be caught up in the righteous acts of a righteous God in an unrighteous world. 
and we're going to commit to, to be candid with him. We're going to commit to allow God to refine us. We're going to realize that the only judgment that counts is not how well I'm doing with someone else, but how do I stand before the cross of Christ? Once we go through this, what happens with our, with our pain, with this burden, is it lifts. Our worry becomes worship. I use three words to summarize this book. Chapter one is about why. God, why? Chapter two is about woe. All the things that are wrong. But chapter three is about wow. Habakkuk has spent so much of this 66 years on his knees. And then what happens is his Worry turns to worship. What we discover is that those ever-present whys when we've been wronged actually are answered by the everlasting who. The ever-present why is always answered by the everlasting who. One of the the great principles here as we look at the text, jump into chapter three with me, is just seeing how his worry in the pit leads to being worship on the mountain. Have a look at chapter three and we'll read from verse three. Just a couple of verses here. I want you to notice the, the reference to mountains and, and obviously in, in Habakkuk's day, the mountain was the place where God resided. Look at this. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from His hand where His power was hidden. Plague went before Him. Pestilence followed His steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. What we discover here is that this practice of prayer, taking our concerns and our pain to God, is not prayer, is not a prosthesis, okay, that allows a shaky faith to remain standing. It is a pathway to a God who always stands firm. Oh, there's power in prayer. There's only power in prayer because prayer is the pathway that leads us from the pit to the mountain. That's the power of prayer. And yes, many times in our lives, especially when we've been wrong, prayer is tough. We turn down the volume when God says, I want you to turn it up. But the reality of this is that if we'd only persist in prayer, God will get us there. See, in the space between wrong and justice, God says to us, don't leave your knees until your view of me reaches new heights. Friends, this is the meaning of prayer uprising. It's when prayer in the pit is so persistent that it leads you on a path to the mountain. And there on the mountain, you realize God is going to get me there. When Vip and I started dating, I was ministering in a small little church in Wales. Vipka lived on the, in the Black Forest in Germany on the Switzerland-France border. And uh, again, back in those days, I sound really old now, don't I? 
um, flights were really expensive. So when I used to go and see Vipka, I used to take the bus from Wales all the way into Switzerland, which was 36 hours, 37 hours. It was awful. And uh, the only good thing was what awaited me on the other side, right? Um, now, one day, somebody in the little church in Wales came to me and said, Craig, here's what I'm going to do. I want to bless you with a plane ticket to go and see Vipka. I was like, this is awesome. So I booked a ticket, and uh, the airport, London Gatwick, wasn't too far from the seminary I studied in. So I thought, I don't know what I'll do. I'll go up a couple of hours early, go and see some of my friends that I'd met in seminary I'd just finished, and go see a couple of the professors, and, and then I'll go down to the airport after that. I had a friend of mine who was still there, um, going to drive me down in my car. So that's what I did. Well, what, while I was there, I forgot about something called the concrete car park, the concrete parking lot. It's got the M25. It's basically the ring road that runs around London. In order to get from where I was to where the airport was, I needed to go on the M25, and it was rush hour. I forgot about it. And so I'm trying to get there, and I arrive at the airport really, really late. And I get to the counter, I'll never forget it, running to the counter, and this is pre-9-11, so the screening and everything else was a little bit easier back then. I get to the counter, and I remember the airline saying, you must be Mr. Reese. And I'm like, yes, we've been waiting for you, they said. And I just kind of, they gave me my boarding pass, took me through security, took me to this kind of narrow corridor, and I'm running around the corridor. I turn the corner, and there is just this crowd of people walking really slowly. And I'm like, oh, no. And I get up behind them. I try to push through, couldn't do it. And I must have muttered something out loud, because the guy by the side of me says, where are you going? And I said, oh, I'm off to Zurich. I'm going to see my girlfriend, and I'm going to miss the flight. And with that, the guy turned to me and said, hey, don't worry, I'm the pilot. <laughs> I think sometimes when we're worried about something, it is really easy to forget God's the pilot. God's got this. Back to Margaret's story. We left Margaret really struggling with how to vocalize her faith and to pray because she was so angry. I encouraged Margaret at that point not to allow this thing to drop, that the right thing for the righteous to do is to challenge the use of freedom that allows unjust people to do unrighteous acts and go and report the crime. That's what she did. And the police went and they looked at the videotaping, the videotape of the, of the cameras at the underground. They identified the man. They prosecuted the man. It went to court. It was an open-shut case. At the end of the court case, at the end of the trial, the judge looked at Margaret and said, Margaret, would you like to say anything? Margaret had spent a, that in, a lot of that time just trying to work through the fact that she needed to express her pain to God. And so she stood up in the courtroom and she turned to the person that had savagely assaulted her. And she said, for a number of weeks before this day, I was angry I was angry at God for allowing this to happen, and I was angry at you, she pointed to him, for making this happen, and then she pointed, and I was angry at all of you for you allowing this to happen to me just because I've got a different color of skin to what you have. I was angry. I wanted to lock myself away, but I've been encouraged that that's not the right thing to do. And so I prayed. I prayed to ask God to bring me to the point of being able to forgive you. I prayed asking God to, be, to bring me to the point of being able to forgive all of you. And there while I was on my knees, God showed me 
a fresh picture of the cross of Christ and realized that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's only because of the mercy of Jesus Christ that I have received forgiveness. And she looked at the one that had beaten her and basically said, and I want you to know, I forgive you because God has forgiven me. And at that moment, that young German man burst into tears and said, I am so sorry. There was a moment of embrace in that courtroom that defied the experience. And the last words of the judge were, I have never experienced anything like this in my courtroom before. Pain, when we have been wronged, is a tough thing to work through. The worst thing that we can do is to stay silent and not express it. The worst thing that we can do is to actually believe that God's lost control of our lives and of the world. He hasn't. God will get us there. We just need to trust him. And as we trust him by being on our knees, what we will discover is that our pain in the pit will lead to worship on the mountain as we receive a fresh revelation of who God is that enables us to deal with that pain and to experience God shepherding our hearts. I'm going to ask the team to come back and they're going to sing a song that basically reveals to us how God shepherds our soul. And as you listen to these words, what I would encourage you to do is to allow God to minister to you. If you're here today and you have been wronged, then I pray that these words will lead you from the pit to the mountaintop where you would receive a fresh glimpse of who Jesus is. Now, some of you today, you may well need to just surrender that pain to him and say, okay, God, I don't get this, I don't like this, but I embrace the season, do a work in my heart. For some of you, you may need to do that publicly. We've said before, these altars are always open. So as they sing, if you need to get up and kneel before God and just say, God, please meet me where I am, then feel free to do that. We never want you to stand alone. We will come and stand with you. But as you listen to these words, just allow God to shepherd your soul. Thanks, guys. If you're navigating that space between pain, wrong, justice and God wants you to know this morning he's not forsaken you but sometimes righteous people get caught up in a righteous God using less righteous people to discipline even less wicked nations sometimes a righteous God will allow a less righteous person to refine you and me. As tough as that is, embrace it. And as you spend time on your knees, our prayer for you is that you'll be led from the pit to the mountaintop because your perspective of God has moved from one of always why to one of wow. And I pray that you would know God shepherding your souls. Father, we thank you that you are the good shepherd of this nation of our families, and also of our lives. Help us, Father, to embrace that refining work where you do it. 
And Father, help us to just move from the pit of despair to the mountaintop where we can see you more clearly than we've ever seen before. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for being uh, here. If you're a guest of ours and you have been coming to Central for just a few weeks, uh, we would remind you that there is a Central Connect lunch that is free and available to all of you on July the 9th. All we'd like you to do for that is to just go and sign up. That's about an hour at last. It'll tell you a little bit about who we are, what God's saying to us in the future, and we'd just be delighted to welcome you. Other than that, have a great week. Enjoy the time with family and friends, and we'll see you all again next week. God bless.